Good morning, church. As I've said in recent weeks, all three of Lindsay Lane's campuses are working together through a current sermon series about God's covenants called I Promise. Today, our preaching pastors are actually rotating campuses. I'm preaching at Lindsay Lane North. Alan, our North Campus pastor, is at Lindsay Lane East. And the East Campus pastor, Heath Haney, will be delivering the message to you today here at Lindsay Lane, Maine. Heath Haney is a great communicator, a gifted leader, has a mind for ministry, and a sincere heart for people. It's truly a blessing to have him lead at Lindsay Lane, and I'm certainly proud to call him my friend. So please make Heath, his wife Kelly, and their children, Elsie, Joe, and Dan, welcome as he comes today to bring the Word of God. Good morning. If you didn't know I was here, it's because we had to get the FBI and CIA involved uh, to keep this thing a secret. Um, and so, uh, but I, man, I'm, we are so excited to be able to do this. I know Alan had a great time preaching this morning at East and, and Andy John at North. And uh, man, we're just looking forward to how God's going to continue to grow all three of our campuses in the future. And so we want to we continue to partner together uh, as we move into the future. From our East campus, I want to say to you, thank you. Uh, thank you for your investment in 2013 in the Harvest community. You gave of your time and your resources, and you gave of people here from the main campus to go and plant a church in the Harvest community so that the gospel could go forward there just as it has here in Athens. And so from them, I say to you, thank you. Um, we, are, uh, we are brothers and sisters in Christ, and, and uh, we do consider you family. And so today, um, I'm gonna, we're going to be in 2 Samuel 7, and I'm going to take a drink of water because you have already heard me cough twice. We'll try to take care of that. Um, 2 Samuel chapter 7. While you're turning there, keep one ear on me, okay? Uh, I believe, uh, just from my own past, uh, I grew up in church. My mom and dad are here today. My dad was a deacon, led music uh, the whole time I was in, uh, in, in school growing up. My mom was involved in kids' ministry, children's worship stuff. Um, I grew up in church. I knew all the stories. I knew every single story that the Bible had to tell. But what I didn't grasp was how they all fit together. And I believe now, having that in my past, what I, what, what I believe to be the truth is that believers, more than anything else, you need to understand, you need to understand how God's Word tells one story. You need to understand the storyline of Scripture. And at East, we've made that one of our distinctives as far as our discipleship process. So when people come in and we start walking them through what is it like to be a believer, the first thing we ask them to do is to learn the story of the Old Testament and New Testament. And so today, what our, uh, that, that's not only a curriculum for us, it's changed the way that I preach, okay? Um, and y'all have to endure with it today, okay? Because here's what, here's what East has already learned. When we're going through a series where we're, we're covering large sections of the Bible and we're just skipping from one to the next like this, uh, I can't just jump right in. So today, we're going to begin in Genesis chapter 1 and work our word, way to 2 Samuel 7. Y'all cool with that? So y'all laugh just like the first service, but it's about to be awkward because I'm literally going to do it. Okay? But I promise you, uh, I did it in about six minutes. I think I can do it in less than five today uh, in the second service, okay? Here's what you need to understand. From the very beginning, God created everything good, and that included mankind. I know you look around and you see mankind in a mess. We were created good, very good, in fact. When God created us, it was our sin that messed everything up. Genesis 3 through 5 is the story of the spiraling of mankind in sin. And it gets so out of hand that God wants to decreate so that he can recreate. And he calls out from among the world a man named Noah. 
Noah was a man who, nothing special about him, but God called him out from the world with a, for a particular purpose in a particular time. Noah's purpose was to, to, that God was going to recreate the world from him. That's what we see. However, Noah's genes were no better than Adam and Eve's, and he continues to sin. His children continue to sin. Their descendants continue to sin. The story from the end of uh, Noah to Genesis 11 at the end um, is another spiral story. It ends at the Tower of Babel. God had told his people to be my image bearers, spread throughout the earth. Instead, they've gathered together to make a name for themselves instead of make a name for God. Genesis 12, we get introduced to a man named Abram. Abram, whose name is later changed to Abraham. God says to Abram, you will, uh, God calls Abraham out. Just as he called out uh, Noah, God called him out for a particular purpose in a particular time. The task given to Abraham was not, I'm going to recreate from you, I'm going to recreate through you. I'm going to call up a family underneath you. They're going to be a blessing to all the nations. And I'm going to accomplish my will of image bearers around the earth through your family. That was the plan. But they were a bunch of goofballs too, and they were no better. And the, the story continues to spiral. But then what we see is another man. As Abraham's family, uh, the, the covenant God made with Abraham was a threefold promise. He promised him land, he promised him a big family, and he promised that his family would be a special blessing to all the nations. That was the game plan. However, they get to the land, uh, God does bless Abraham with a family. They grow to about 70 people, but they've yet to see what it looks like to be a blessing to all the nations. A famine hits across the whole earth. And in that moment, Abraham's family has a choice to make. We can stay here in the promised land and die, or we can go to where there is food. God had already warned the people of Egypt through one of, his, through one of Abraham's descendants that there were going to be seven years of good, good food, good product, produce, and then seven years of famine. So Egypt was prepared. They had a stockpile of food. Abraham's family now transitioned to Egypt. That's how they wind up in Egypt. They're living there under Pharaoh. The first, that's this Pharaoh's rule. He loves the, uh, the Abraham's family. He loves them. They're those funny rednecks. Um, everybody's got those weird cousins, right? Um, they're those weird cousins that come in, right? They're living, they're, they're living as aliens in Egypt. And, uh, but they're living there, and it's, after the seven years of famine, they don't go back to the promised land, though. They stay for 400 years in Egypt. And Pharaoh changes, and Pharaoh, the, the title of Pharaoh continues to change. New Pharaoh, new Pharaoh, new Pharaoh, until a moment when there's a Pharaoh who doesn't think they're cute anymore. He doesn't honor them. In fact, he begins to, to fear them. And so the new Pharaoh, who we read about at the beginning of the book of Exodus, comes in and does what every good dictator does. He makes them slaves and he begins to control their population. However, God calls from among the Israelites in Egypt one man. He calls him out just as he called out Noah, just as he called out Abraham. Now he calls out a man named Moses for a particular purpose in a particular time. The purpose that God called for Moses was to lead his people out of Egypt. God's not going to decreate. He's not going to cause judgment over the whole earth. He's going to flood his judgment towards Egypt. And he wants Moses to lead his people through the waters of the Red Sea into the promised land. Abraham does that. They stop at Mount Sinai to make a covenant. That was Andy John's sermon last week. If you missed that, go back and check it out. But they're on their way back, and Moses dies before they enter the promised land. Moses's uh, protege, Joseph, not Joseph, Joshua, continues the path, leads them into the promised land. They conquer, they whoop everybody, and they own, they now, for the first time, for the first time, they possess the land. The promise that was made to Abraham so long ago doesn't come to fruition until Moses leads them back and they conquer the land. They settle. 
Um, judges lead them, but the people want a king. God says, I'll give you a king. I'll give you the king you want. And he calls a man named Saul. Saul was a big burly man. He was head and shoulders over everybody else. This is your king. He was a king of the people's choosing, a man of the people's choosing. And so Saul's king, but he's a, he's a doofus. He doesn't listen to God, and he, he messes things up. And so, and so the nation of Israel is in, they're in trouble. They're in trouble because their king isn't listening to God. So God says he anoints a new king. Just as he called out Noah, just as he called out Abraham, just as he called out Moses, he calls out a man named David for a particular purpose in a particular time. David was not like Saul. He listened to God, and he loved God. David was the man of God's choosing. The Bible calls him a man after God's own heart. He was the king. That's a Heathany introduction, okay? This is why you're here at the main campus and not at East, because it's annoying, isn't it? But that's what our people have to deal with every Sunday. All right, <clears throat> so, and it was a lot longer than five minutes. So, but here, here's, here's, what, uh, here's, what, here's where we're going from here. David, we know that he's far from perfect, but God uses him to lead God's people and not just lead them as a king, but to be their shepherd. This is where we start. Get, Moses was also a shepherd, but we begin to see the shepherd language come in that's so important. There's so much stuff we're going to do today. We're going to talk about the covenant that God makes with David. Um, it's so good, but you've got to hang in there with me, and I'm going to begin to slow down my talk, I promise, okay? I'm going to read 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 1 through 7. I'm going to read that. I'm going to pray, and then we'll come back and break it down. Verse 1. When the king had settled into his palace and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, the king said to the prophet Nathan, Look, I'm living in a cedar house while the ark of God, which represented the presence of God, sits inside tent curtains. So Nathan told the king, Go and do all that is on your mind, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, and he corrected him. Go to my servant David and say, This is what the Lord says. Are you to build me a house to dwell in? From the time I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until today, I have not dwelt in a house. Instead, I've been moving around with a tent as my dwelling. In all my journeys with all the Israelites, have I ever spoken a word to one of the tribal leaders of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, asking why haven't you built me a house of cedar? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, that uh, we know your word is true. God, we know you've given it to us, God, uh, to sharpen us, uh, to help us follow you. But God, ultimately, we know your word is given to us so that we understand who you are. And we understand the plan that you have for us and the covenant that you've made all throughout history that it involves us. God, today, as we continue to look at your word, God, as we pray at East, I pray that you would teach us to know you and that you would be with us today. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this, cover, this, uh, this covenant conversation that David has can sound a little weird, right? David's there in his palace, and he says, hey, I live in this beautiful house. Some of you woodworkers, smell of cedar is beautiful, isn't it? It's beautiful. And so David's sitting around in his palace, and he can smell that beautiful cedar smell. He's enjoying it, and he looks out, and he sees the tabernacle, which God had given the instructions for building, which was a big tent where the ark of God, the presence of God would dwell. It's just a multi-room tent. And he's in this house of cedar, and he looks out, and there's a tent in the yard. <laughs> Mother-in-law suite <laughs> that, David's that, that God is residing in. And, and, and it breaks David's heart. And, and it, can, it can be easy to think that, okay, da David's, a, man, David's doing something good here, but we actually don't see God respond positively to what he says. He says, I want to build you a house. Top A people in the room, if you're wanting to take notes, 
A house for God is point number one. A house for God. That's what we see David want to build. Because during David's time as king, he's been all over the place. They've been hauling this tent. It's on poles, and they pick it up, and they move it from place to place. They've carried it from Mount Sinai all the way into the Promised Land, and as they've conquered, it's been everywhere. And David, David has clearly, as he looks around at his palace, he equates this physical structure and this, this, uh, this, this cedar house is an evidence of his authority, right? This, this is an ancient thing. You, the reason why they build big palaces is so when you walk by, you say, dude, that's a big palace. That must be an important man. And so David has done that. David's built himself a palace so that when people walk by, the Israelites and surrounding nations, when they see his palace, they will see, man, that's a, that must be an important man. It's, it's the same thing he wants for God. He wants God. He wants God to have a permanent place so that when the people look at the temple, they'll say, that must be an important God. Because David has conquered so many peoples. He's conquered nations as they've, as they've moved through the land, right? And what has he torn down? Shrines and temples to false gods. Oh, one after the other, after the other, after the, the, the Bible tells us about these ones he's tearing down. And every one of them, I mean, they're just, they're just beautiful. And the, 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 the purpose of those temples is to convey that the, our God has authority. And here is the true God, the, the real God, the one, the God of Israel, and he's, high, he's hanging out in a tent. David wants to fix it, but it seems that what, what, uh, what, what God corrects here is that David has, David has tied his, his view of authority to this permanent structure. Uh, the reason he wants to build God a house is so that everyone will know that God is awesome. And this sounds like a, it, it's not a terrible idea, but what we see is that God smacks his hand. I've got kids. I don't know about you, but uh, I smacked hands for till I was tired of it. When they were young, little, I can remember my son, he played in the trash can, and uh and I don't know how to get him to like I don't know how to get him to quit playing in the trash can. So I tried popping his hand. And then he looked at me. And he went back to the trash can and I popped his hand. He looked at me and he went back to the trash can. And I thought, I'm winning this. <laughs> so I popped his hand again. And he started crying. And I thought, we're good now. We're good. And he reached back for the trash can. <laughs> And so I picked him up, and I carried him to the living room, and we played. Um, that was all I knew how to do. I don't know. I, I lost that battle, whatever you say. Uh, bad parent, good parent, whatever. But here we see God, God seems to be kind of slapping David's hand. We see David wanting to do something good for God, but there's clearly something else going on. What God does is God teaches David two theological truths that you and I have got to grasp. Otherwise, we will move through life um, not depending on God the way that we should. The first thing that God taught David was this. God don't need you. Isn't that encouraging? Just encourages your socks off, don't it? God don't need you. But it's true. Look at verse 6. David said, From the time I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until today, I ain't had a house. Instead, I've been moving around with a tent as my dwelling. God is making it clear that my authority is not dependent on some temple or some structure. Right? David wants badly to build something to showcase how awesome God is to Israel and the nations around. But God's argument is that my deeds have already proven how awesome I am. I don't need you to build me anything, David. 
David's thinking about the importance of some permanent structure while God's emphasis is my presence among you. That's what David needed to latch on to. It don't matter if God's in a temple or God's in a tent. We just want his presence. Pastoral application number one. I can now say this about all three campuses of Lindsay Lane Lane Baptist Church. We all have buildings now. North made that move. We all have buildings. And we all take care of our buildings. We want, we, we, but here's the problem, y'all. As a church, we don't need the walls. What we need is God's presence. What we need is God's presence. And as a pastor who's pastoring a church who's already out of space, I'm asking the question, how can we expand? How can we do that? How can we make better use of our facilities or add on to our facilities? But at the end of the day, if that's what controls my fault and not the presence of God, so help me. I'm being disobedient to what God's called me to do. My main concern as a pastor must not be my properties and my, and my, my logistics. It must be, God, how can we see more of your presence among our people? Because that is what God has called us to be. It's the only thing we cannot exist without. There are churches around the world that don't have, that don't, that aren't, that don't have buildings. But there is no church around the world that does not have the presence of God. Because that's a country club. God, help us to depend more on your presence than we do our things. In 13 years of ministry, I've seen battles in churches over the dumbest conversations. The first, per- the first service gave me permission to say dumb, and I hope you do too. The dumbest stuff we argue about. And sadly, so much of it has been about our properties or our buildings or our, our, the structures. We act as if the structures somehow prove God's presence in our church and his pleasure over us. Listen, y'all, but if God is big enough to exist, if God is big enough to sustain the people of Israel from a tent in the backyard, I think we'll be all right. And that's what we're resting in at East. We're going to be all right. It would be wise of the church to get today to begin to ask the question, how can we experience more of God's presence? Verses 8 and 9, God continues this theological lesson. So this is what you are to say to my servant David. Again, he's talking to Nathan. This is what the Lord of armies says. I took you from the pasture. You can insert a Hebrew word here that gets translated big boy. It's not actually there, but it should be. I took you from the pasture, big boy. From tending the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all your enemies before you. God's teaching him a theological lesson number two, and it's this. We need God. Desperately. God don't need us, but we need God. What God's helping him see here, to put it in Heath terms, God's looking at David and he's saying, So you want to build me a house? You want to build me a house like your house? Okay. Who built your house again? Who gave you all your power? Who gave you all your authority? Big boy. Right? God is proving the point that we are desperately in need of God. There is nothing that David could do. David would still be in the, in the, in the uh, what's he in? The pasture. 
shepherding a flock and not living in the cedar palace, but God. I took you from the pasture and I put you over my people. He says, I drove out the people before you. You didn't do nothing. But God is helping him see is something that you and I need to recognize that no matter how big you think your, your britches are, remember that God bought them. If people in your life think you look holy, it ain't you. It was God. If people see any gifting in you, any talent, any ability, you don't get to claim any of it because it's all from God. We are desperately in need of God as pastors, as, 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 as connect group leaders, as kids workers. All of us need the presence and power of God in our lives. Otherwise, we're just shepherds hanging out in the field. As quickly as God transitioned, as quickly as this conversation, just imagine, David thought he was saying something good to God. And God flipped the whole thing and proves just how goofy David is. But then he flips it again. And he turns it back to make some very strong promises to David. This is what we would view as the covenant part, the covenant with David. It's the partnership that God's offering to David at this point. Instead of, God, instead of God getting a house out of this deal, David gets a house. That's point number two, major point, house for David. I'm going to read verses 10 through 16. Uh, well, start in verse 9 uh, at the end there. I will make a great name for you. Isn't that a quick shift? The, the whole big boy stuff, and then I will make a great name for you like that of the greatest on the earth. Verse 10, I will designate a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not continue to oppress them as they have done ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people Israel. I'll give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever. And your throne will be established forever. When God speaks to his people, especially when he speaks through prophets, you and I can make a grave mistake. And that is to take everything that the prophet says and try to put it directly into the story. Like, short term. That God is promising these things right now. Oftentimes when prophets speak, and this is just important for you to know, when you're reading prophetic books and when you hear prophets speak, there's two things going on. One is what they're saying oftentimes has a, what we call a near fulfillment a short-term answer, okay? Like in this situation, God's speaking of his son Solomon. Like Solomon's about to be king after David. And so there are some things that apply to, to Solomon here. And you can hear that and you go, okay, that's, that's what he's talking about. But then there's parts of this that don't make sense. We'll talk about that here in a second. And those are the things that we call far fulfillment. So some of these words in this are not talking about David and Solomon or even Solomon's son or grandson. 
It's looking way into the future, what we call far fulfillment. So let's, let's talk through this. Uh, the first thing I want to look at is the near fulfillment. Um, and what we see is that God, uh, God builds a, wants to build a dynasty from David. Now, uh, I'm going to speak to the people my age for just a second, okay? And maybe some of the other ages, but if you're my age, you know what a dynasty is because you played NCAA football on Xbox and PlayStation, and if you're laughing, you know what I'm talking about, right? We know what a dynasty is. A dynasty, it was, it was dynasty mode. It was my favorite. Don't play season mode. Don't play pickup games, man. You play dynasty mode. What dynasty mode was is you would, you would become the coach of the team, and you'd have to recruit, and you'd have to play every single game on your schedule. And the point was not for you to play a couple seasons, but for you to play 15, 20, 35. I don't know anybody that did that. But I played NCAA football a ton, and, and what, what the, the goal of the, the game was not to have an awesome recruiting class and then quit the game. The point was that you're building a program. You're building a football program that is, that is going to last long past one recruiting class. This is very similar to what God wants to do in David. The first thing that God says about it is he said, I want to make your name great. The best thing about a dynasty in sports is that the guy that starts it often gets remembered and almost immortalized. And y'all bear with me for a second while I talk Alabama football. It hurts me. God help me. But we all know it, right? I love Nick Saban, and some of y'all are going to find offense to this, but he's living on the back of Bear Bryant. I mean, he's done incredible things, don't get me wrong, but the dynasty began. Now, there was a, there was a rough period there. <laughs> I won't name names, but there was a rough period for you fans. But Paul Bear Bryant's name is going to be talked about for years and years and years because the dynasty at Alabama, the program that Alabama football is today first began back then. And he will be remembered for that. And I'm not a Bama fan, and that's enough. I won't talk about it again. But God says, I'm going to make your name great. You're going to be remembered. Your name will be great in the whole world. He says in verse 9, and that's crazy to think about. But the second part of this dynasty is not just that David's name is going to be great, but that, he, that his kids are going to get to sit on the throne. This was so huge for David to hear. Because remember, who was the king before David? Say it. Saul. Thank you. Saul. And guess whose kids didn't get to sit on the throne? <laughs> Saul's. They got the boot. So that David could come in. That's exactly what happened. God anointed David instead of anointing one of the kids of Saul. And so what God tells David here is that your descendants are going to get to continue to sit on the throne. David's thinking, sweet. My retirement plan is paying off, right? Like, this is, this is good. My kids are going to be taken care of. My son is going to get to sit on the throne. And God also tells him that your son is going to build the temple that he so desperately wants to build for God. We know this to be his son Solomon. It would have been great to hear, but there's some bad news in the midst of it as well. Look at verse 14. 
He says, I will be his father and he will be my son. And when he does wrong, I'm going to discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. When you look at the rest of the story, David's descendants continue to sit on the throne all the way up to the exile um, in Babylon. They continue to sit on the throne, but it ain't good. It ain't always good. Kings take over for David, his descendants, they sit on the throne and some of them aren't good. And guess what happens in those moments? Kingdoms and peoples attack from the outside and, and they win. They're successful against God's people. And so we see the, the short term, we see the, the, the near fulfillment is, David, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give this throne to your kids. And that's not always going to go well, but it's going to be okay. They're going to continue to sit on the throne. But there's some weird comments that are made here. Look at the, look at verse, uh, was it 10, 11, 12, 13? He is the one, talking about Solomon, he is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Huh? You know what you can do today? If you knew where he was, you could go find Solomon's bones. Because he dead. He's not alive. His kingdom did not last forever. And we know from the rest of the story that his, his children's children all died. Nobody, in fact, the kingdom of Israel ceased to be at a moment. And now today, there is not a king of David sitting on a throne in Israel. So what in the world is God talking about? This is the far fulfillment that I'm trying to tell you about. This is the far fulfillment. This is what we're seeing is that David wanted to build a house for God, but God flips it and says, I'm going to build a house for you. But point number three, if you're a note taker, is that God wants to build a house for all. And that's what he does in this promise and in the covenant with David. I want to introduce you to an idea that has helped me read the Bible a ton. You know what hyperlinks are? You know what I'm talking about? You get an email the little blue word with an underline. You know what I'm talking about? Somebody nod. Good nod. Okay, thank you. Y'all wake up. Hyperlinks. There are these blue things. If you go to Wikipedia, right now, Wikipedia loves, loves hyperlinks. You click on uh, L.A. Lakers. You search L.A. Lakers. Go to L.A. Lakers Wikipedia page. What you're going to see, one of the first things that's mentioned is who the coach of the L.A. Lakers is. And guess what his name is going to be? It's going to be blue, and it's going to be underlined. You know why? Because you can click on it, and it's going to pull up a whole other page where it's going to tell you about that coach. It's going to tell you about his, his growing up. It's going to tell you about his personal life, his family. It's going to tell you about the places he, he played ball, the schools he went to. It's going to tell you all kind of stuff about him. And then you can hit that back button, and you're coming back to the L.A. Lakers page. But guess what? You now understand more about the L.A. Lakers. One of the next things mentioned on the L.A. Lakers page is about their championships, and there's a bunch of them. And so you can click on those. You can click on every single one of the championships. It's going to carry you to a separate page, and it's going to tell you about the games that they won, about how, what their season looked like, the main players. And guess what you can then do? Hit the back button. Come back to the page on the L.A. Lakers, and guess what you now know? More about the L.A. Lakers. God's Word does the same thing, church. We come to certain terms and certain words, and you and I just breeze right over it. But what God in His Holy Spirit, all-knowing Holy Spirit, is screaming at you, slow down and pay attention to this word. David is called my servant. My servant 
David. That's intentional. It's only used two times with intentionality before this moment. I'll give you three guesses at who they are because they're the sermon titles from the last two weeks. If you guess Noah, you're wrong. Abraham and Moses. So there's intentionality there. You and I read my servant David and we keep going. But we need to recognize there's something to this. There's an imp- this is an important hyperlink. We need to click on it. We need to go back and we need to look at the life of Abraham. And we need to look at the life of Moses. We need to see why is God comparing David with Moses and Abraham. The good news is we don't have to do it this morning because we've already done it. And the people said amen. Praise God. That's what we've done the last two weeks. What we're supposed to walk away is that God is, is conveying to his people through his word in Second Samuel. He is saying, David is continuing what I've already begun. The problem is this is not how you and I read the Bible. We simply come to God's word and we ask God's word to speak into our day. I tell our people at East these two words all the time. I'm going to share them with you today. Stop it. Okay? Stop reading the Bible for yourself first. Stop reading the Bible into your own day first. It's lazy. And it's not what we've done throughout Christian history. What we've done throughout Christian history is we first ask God to help us understand the text. Then we can ask, God, help me apply it. We need to go in their day. We need to take a trek from 2021 and dive back into the kingdom of Israel in in, in David's day and ask the question, what's going on in the text? I get off my soapbox. The first hyperlink in the text is that, my servant David. It's significant. We should read this as God is continuing the redemptive work that he began through Abraham and Moses. And then in verse 9 is one of my favorite hyperlinks in the whole thing. And it just sounds cool. He says, what does he say? Where is it? He says, I will make, uh, verse 9, I will make a great name for you like that of the greatest on the earth. Remember Genesis 11? Genesis 11, instead of God's people, instead of mankind spreading throughout the earth and carrying the name of God and making it great, they gather together in Babylon to build a tower and make their own name great. And the very next story, the very next thing, chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. And check this out. I will make your name great. See, what you and I read God saying to David, we go, oh, that's nice. God already made this promise to Abraham that I'm going to make your name great and you will be a blessing. God's contrasting that in chapter 12. He says, here's this group of people at Babylon trying to make a name for themselves. He says to Abraham, I am going to make your name great. And we see the same promise come up here to David. It's not a coincidence, church. This is how we're supposed to read the Bible, that God is continuing this covenant of redemption through David now. So let's think back to Abraham's. If everything's tying back to Abraham, let's go back there. I told you that the covenant is a threefold promise. What were they? Land, a big family, and that that family would be a special blessing to all the nations. When David is in his palace, where is he? He's in the land. Is there a big family there? Oh, yeah. Millions and millions of people now. Abraham's family has expanded to. What we haven't seen 
is what it looks like for God's people to be a special blessing to all the nations. David and, and the people of God are experiencing the first two parts of that promise, but what God, is, what God is saying in the text for us today is that that third piece is about to get, I'm about to give you a preview of it. I'm about to give you a taste of it. David has seen the family of Abraham grow into a great nation. They're living in the land of promise. But now God says this seed of Abraham, who is going to be a blessing to all nations, he's also going to sit on a forever throne. That's in the text. These are not two separate promises, but one and the same. God is going to use a son of Abraham, who is also a son of David, to not only bless the nations, but to establish a kingdom of all nations. Who could this be? That's the ellipsis at the end of this story. That's the, the, the anticipation. Right? We hear about this covenant with David, and the people are like, what does this kingdom look like? When is it going to come? And then we get years later from the prophet Isaiah, Chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The, the throne of David will last forever through this son who is going to come. Who is this baby boy? It continues. The anticipate. We don't know yet. I heard some of y'all say it. Don't say it yet. We ain't there yet. We're building suspense. That's what we read in the text. When we read the text the way it's supposed to be read, we're building suspense. The storyline continues. There is anticipation. Who is this son of Abraham, this son of David? Who is this child? Some people claim to be it, and then they die, and everybody gets weirded out, and that's not them. And so one day, a messenger from the Lord, an angel named Gabriel, comes to a young girl named Mary. Luke 1, verse 30. The angel told her, don't be afraid, girl. You found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son and name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Do you see it? Do you see the point of everything we've been working towards? David's actual son Solomon, yes, God was going to use him to do some important things. But in this covenant with David, God's big promise, the far-reaching promise, is that David's great, 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 bunch of more greats, grandson, is going to be the one who will finally sit on the forever throne. He's going to be born in a weird little town called Bethlehem, and he would, be, he would be fully God, yet also fully man. He would live the perfect life that David couldn't pull off because Bathsheba was too hot. He lived the perfect life that, that none of us could pull off. And in his death, in his death, he would take on all the sin and the shame and the pain that you and I experience because we are broken. We deserved, and he would die, but his death would not be final because even though they buried his body, it don't stop God. And God raised him up from the dead, and after spending 40 days freaking people out, if your friend came back from the live, you'd freak out too. After spending 40 days appearing and proving his resurrection, what did Jesus do? He ascended to the right hand of the Father to sit on what? A love seat? An ottoman? No. A throne. A throne. I have a question for you 
have you trusted in the son of David? The one that everything has been working towards. All of humanity, from the moment that we sinned in the Garden of Eden and God told Eve, there will be a snake crusher who will come one day, who will deal with sin. From that moment forward, everything has been waiting on Jesus. Today you can trust in him. You can trust in the one who has changed my life and changed so many people in this room's life. You can experience grace and forgiveness. The Bible makes it clear that we need to, we need to first turn from our sin. The Bible word is repent. We need to turn from our sin and turn to God. And the Bible says to trust fully in the name of Jesus. Today, we want to help you do that. If you've never trusted in Jesus and you'd like to today, you'd like to have what so many people in this room have, a relationship with God through Jesus, we want to help you with that. We're about to sing a song of celebration here just in, 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 in just to celebrate what God has shown us in his word. And, and we're going to have, I'll be down front, Brother Randy, and I don't know who else may be down front. We'll have decision counselors as well down front just to help you take the next steps that God may have placed in your heart. But I also want to speak to those of us who are Christians. May I just remind you, church, of what God reminded David of. God don't need you. God don't need you. Don't build yourself up. God don't need us. Our efforts are nothing. But God chooses to use us. That's the beauty. God doesn't need us, but he chooses to use us. The second truth that he taught David was that we are in total desperation of who God is. If you got a good job, that was God. If you got well-behaved kids, that was God. If you got food in your fridge at home, that was God. If you love this church family and the people sitting near you, that's God. Got nothing to take credit for, church. Be reminded of that today, and may it change the way that we sing this last song. May we worship God like never before, having recognized our need for him. Let's pray together. Then you stand after I pray, and we'll sing, and you can respond. Father God, we thank you. God, that